0: The Guardian. In the last episode, we looked at how advances in shoe running technology are leading to records being smashed. But technology can only help athletes so much. Training, mindset and dedication all come into play, as well as biological factors that are out of anyone's control. Coming hard Phelps, he's still a chance, he's a real big chance. Can he do it again? He hits it, and he does. Michael Phelps is a prime example of this. His proportionally larger wingspan and double-jointed ankles are said to give him an advantage with every stroke. Usually, genetic advantages that appear to give athletes a natural ability are celebrated, but that's not always the case when it comes to women's athletics. At the start of July, two female athletes from Namibia Christine Mumba and Beatrice Misselinghi were told they couldn't compete in this year's competition unless they medicate to reduce their testosterone hormone levels. I'm Shivani Dave, and from The Guardian, this is Science Weekly. As debates continue to rage about who should and shouldn't be allowed to compete in women's sport, I wanted to look at the impact testosterone levels have on women competing in these games. Katrina Kakazes is a professor of sexuality, women's and gender studies at Amherst College and a senior research fellow with the Global Health Justice Partnership at Yale University. She specializes in sex testing and sport regulations that ban women athletes with naturally high testosterone. We will be referencing sex here and when we do when when sport Organizational bodies refer to separate sex of people that they categorize them into with competitions based on sex. How is that defined um based on what someone was assigned at birth or is it based on chromosomes or there's been a long standing Preoccupation, I think,
1: with people who have non normative sex traits, right? So they might, and that could include everything from atypical chromosomal configurations to atypical gonadal configurations to differing hormone levels. And at various points, really beginning in the 1960s, although it certainly was occurring earlier. Um, sports policymakers often in consultation with clinicians would try to settle on a single biological marker in order to categorize people and most specifically women. So it's important to say that the concern has never been around uh, really who's competing in the male category, but really a kind of a, a obsessive focus really on who's competing in the female category. And what they came up against is the complexity of biology, so that while many people might have the same traits, there's a great deal of variability within the category.
0: Once again, Castor Semenya is front page news in South Africa, another public humiliation
1: for the athlete that's prompted anger and sympathy here. When um, what's now called World Athletics began to investigate Castor Semenya, which was Basically, a year long investigation and negotiation around her participation after the 2009 Berlin World Championships. They decided in a concert with the International Olympic Committee to reinstate a particular kind of regulation and a biomarker. And that biomarker ended up being testosterone.
0: Right, yes, and new regulations on the World Athletics Policy on Athletes with Differences of Sex Development added in 2018 has introduced a maximum limit for the amount of blood testosterone a female athlete can have to compete select women's events, including the 400 metres. The limit is 5 nanomoles per litre. Are hormone levels that are naturally higher than this enough to categorise someone as having a difference of sex development?
1: No, um... One of the most interesting things is that people assume that, um, in a sort of lay terms, there's a no man's land between men's and women's levels. But there is very little research. There's a lot of clinical work on testosterone levels and clinical populations. But in elite athletes, which are the population to whom these regulations apply, Um, There are very few studies of testosterone levels. And yet those studies that exist, if people report men's and women's levels, they actually show an overlap. And that overlap works in both directions. It works in the sense that there are women with higher than typical levels and that there are men with lower than typical levels. It works in many ways, much like height, right? And we understand that uh, there's overlap between men and women regarding height, that the rationale in broadest strokes underlying this regulation is that higher levels of testosterone in women produce an improved performance, then what's interesting is that they've excluded women who have testosterone above that level, but who have other sex traits that they deem non-normative. So actually the population of women that account for the majority of the population of women with high testosterone have polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's the vast majority of women with high T. And they're specifically excluded from this regulation. So conceivably, you can have someone with a T level over five, who has PCOS, who is competing, and someone who has a T level uh, above five with a difference of sex development who's excluded from competition, even though both of their levels um, exceed the threshold.
0: Male athletes tend to outperform female athletes and the public perception to that at least is that it's in part due to their on average higher testosterone which is a driver for the red blood cells and the more red blood cells a person has the more oxygen that can get to their muscles meaning they can you know perform faster and for longer periods of time but surely that can't be the only factor as to an individual's capability testosterone
1: was rejected. So at this point, we're talking, uh, you know, roughly 1990s, a a little bit before and after. And it was rejected for the precise reasons that it's being criticized right now that it alone is not determinative of athletic performance, that men's and women's levels overlap, that using this as a criterion of inclusion or exclusion would unfairly exclude some women, especially women with intersex variations. And I think it has a complicated uh, dual identity. One, it is understood still as the male sex hormone and that which is responsible for all things manly and masculine. And if we think about the long history of sport as being a masculine domain, I think what you have is an important confluence of a hormone that is understood to be responsible for masculinity and a kind of activity that is also understood to be masculine. And so there's a way in which these higher levels are thought both to masculinize women and in doing that also somehow masculinize, i.e. improve their performance. And inherent in all of this is a notion that I think is deeply problematic, which is the inherent weakness of women, right? That generally speaking, women are always already vulnerable and weaker than men and that they need to be protected. But what you can't do is say that just because one person's level is higher than another, it's not a volumetric kind of assessment, right? So because someone's level is slightly higher than another, that they will necessarily do better. In fact, what the research shows is that sometimes there's a positive relationship between T and the athletic outcome that's being measured, sometimes there's a neutral relationship and sometimes there's a negative relationship, meaning um, people with higher testosterone do worse. But scientific complexity is not helpful when people want um, less complex and straightforward uh, policies or regulations.
0: And when this happened with Castor Semenya in 2018, there were lots of headlines about it. Since then, there was a recent case surrounding the Olympics about two black women from Namibia with a similar issue. The people who have had this question brought up surrounding their testosterone levels are from ethnically diverse backgrounds compared to their Caucasian counterparts. But is there a racial or ethnic link between these variations in testosterone levels between women?
1: Once again, we're confronted with what's widely believed and what is uh, actually understood from the science. So there is a widespread belief, whether it's looking at populations in just the U.S., um, or internationally that, for example, um, black and brown individuals have lot higher levels of testosterone. A graduate student that I worked with actually looked at that literature and found that there was no evidence of racial differences in that way. Nevertheless, it's widely perceived that there are racial differences in testosterone. The reason that these regulations end up majority, if not exclusively, impacting women of color from the global south is not because they have higher than typical testosterone levels. It's not because there are clusters there of women with high T levels. That is not the case. Um, The reason is that in the Global North, there have been intervention paradigms that have now been called human rights violations by various agencies within the UN that mean that children have been surgically intervened upon without their consent at birth. And so what we have is different um, bodily and medical norms operating in different parts of the world. And what this is essentially doing is saying to women of the global south, um, we don't accept your body or the fact that you've not been intervened upon. And the way that you are allowed to compete is by submitting and subjecting yourself to these medical normalization procedures that are not medically necessary.
0: You mentioned the fact there that these interventions are taking place um, in the Global North and the fact that these athletes have been given what is presented as an option to reduce their testosterone levels either through operations or through other sort of medical intervention. Mm -hmm. What kind of effect does that have, um, both physically... Maybe emotionally and psychologically, socially, on a person, um, if they were to undergo that sort of medical intervention.
1: Yeah, it's devastating. Um, in 2014, I actually had a piece in uh, BMJ that detailed this with several co-authors, and. At that time, it was speculation, right? And so we detailed, for example, um, again, because I've described the way in which the endocrine uh, system is uh, works in sort of particular kind of uh, harmony, that um, what ends up happening is it throws off the way the body operates um, metabolically. It can create um, fatigue. It can create mood disturbance it can affect uh, libido, Um, it can actually affect uh, other organs in the body. And so one of the things that people assume is that um, you just lower the level and any performance difference that you see in the individual is due to the lowering of testosterone. But the kinds of side effects that these interventions have are ones that are especially problematic for an elite athlete. You will hear sometimes the downplaying of this. um, But we have to remember that the reason that the people are undergoing these interventions is not because a doctor has indicated it, but because a sports governing body has indicated it. There are many physiological factors that affect performance in that way. One of the things that people never talk about is socioeconomic status. So that, you know, when Castor Semenya, for example, um, did so well in 2009 in Berlin, one of the things that she talked about in a later interview is that she had moved from her hometown to a training facility that gave her improved nutrition and access to trainers and access to facilities in a way she hadn't had before. So it's very easy to attribute these kinds of changes to something or improvements rather to something physiological. But the reality is that shift in training regimen or other things um, is also something that has a tremendous impact on performance. And it's very often, though not exclusively, tied to the comportment or gender presentation or sexual orientation that people put together into a picture to say, well, that's non-normative. And it's not only that they might be less feminine, but they might be male. And that slippage happens seamlessly and problematically all the time.
0: So finally, this is me being a little bit cheeky, but we often hear that someone has a natural talent or a natural ability, and it seems rather unnatural to then ask athletes to suppress that to meet official requirements, don't you think?
1: I absolutely agree. What you've said seems intuitively right, that you shouldn't have to change how you were born in order to continue competing in the category in which you belong and in which you've competed
0: your whole life. Thank you to Katrina Kakazis for joining me on the show this week. Links to all of The Guardian's coverage of the Olympics can be found in the podcast's webpage. And if you've got any thoughts, feedback or episode ideas, drop us a message at scienceweekly at Science Weekly will be back next week. Bye for now.